My text is John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 10 through 14. John chapter 1, verses 10 through 14. I entitled the message The Frightening Reality of Sin. I come into your prayers. Let us read this holy text together. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word of the Lord. Father, help us. We need you right now. Teach us. Feed us. Mold us. Make us. Break us. Change us. By your grace, and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The frightening reality of sin. You may be seated. Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, the wisdom of the world in our generation will tell us that a sermon topic like this is generally not wise. If you desire to create interest and foster warm feelings of goodwill and cheer. <laughs> the frightening reality of sin sounds gloomy, threatening. As a matter of fact, the largest religious gatherings in the world generally make it a matter of policy to avoid subjects like this. They have correctly concluded that most people in our generation will not stand for such so-called depressing themes. This begs the question about why I would still announce such a subject. Please note that I have carefully labeled them the largest religious gatherings, for I cannot bring myself to call them biblical churches. For they are very far from what is described in the New Testament as a church. If my goal is to build the largest following that I possibly can, then I'm clearly shooting myself in the leg with this subject. I'm failing miserably. <laughs> However, if my goal is to simply tell the truth concerning this text of scripture, I must announce this subject without apology. I am actually... Um, Wanting to explain um, this matter of the biblical doctrine of sin, I know it's a, it's, it's a very 
a different kind of text to pull to deal with the biblical doctrine of sin. But I want you to stay with me. Confusion on this matter of what sin is will be to our peril. You have to be clear. Now, sin is obviously a controversial and problematic word. On the popular, on the popular level, for many people all over the world, most of what is called fun is considered to be sinful by some form of religion. Thus, any discussion of sin is seen by many as an attempt at killing people's pleasures and their source of enjoyment. Preaching about sin seems to be a sure way to destroy any dream of being popular. However, I must reject all suggestions that biblical Christianity seeks to kill the fun in life. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8, it is written concerning our Lord Jesus, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with what? Joy inexpressible and full of glory. <laughs> you know, others have been a bit more cerebral in their rejection of the concept of sin. At the beginning of the last century, the 1900s, there was somewhat of a growing consensus in academia that we were going to be able to get rid of the idea of sin. This started with the notion that when people do evil things, it is really not their fault. It either has to do with their evolutionary biology, you know, their genetic makeup, or else it has to do with bad social systems, you know, like poor education and so on. These ideas gained traction for a while, but they were seriously eroded by the atrocities of the 20th century, like the Holocaust, or the genocidal events, and many other horrors in which mankind demonstrated the depravity and wickedness of its heart. Today, many intellectuals are convinced that we really cannot do without the concept of sin and evil. Why? Why? If we say that the people who did these atrocities are not responsible because of genetics or socialization, we will end up trivializing the suffering of the people who are their victims. And you know we can't do that. We will be trivializing the very notion of justice or even injustice. Why then is the average secular intellectual who acknowledges the reality of sin and evil, is, is, why, is, why is it that they're still uncomfortable with, with some Christians who, who call people sinners? I submit to you that they are uncomfortable because they sense that these professing Christians are up to something that might be dehumanizing to others. They suspect that this is a form of labeling to excuse abusive, bigoted and discriminatory behavior towards others. This is what they're charging us with. They suspect that it is an effort to strip others of the dignity, respect, and equality that they think they deserve. However, we must affirm that any attempt to dehumanize anyone, whether or not it is done deliberately or carelessly, any attempt to dehumanize anyone is not promoted by the biblical doctrine of sin. Dehumanizing others is not biblical Christianity. It is a perversion from the very pit of hell. So, where does that leave us? We have the secular anti-religious intelligentsia 
Coming to the point where they are acknowledging the reality of sin and evil in the world, they affirm the concept of sin because it doesn't allow for the trivialization of the suffering of those who are victimized. Neither does it permit the trivialization of injustice. However, they reject the labeling of anyone as a sinner, especially if it appears to be a veiled effort at dehumanization. Now, we shall carefully examine this text of Holy Scripture and demonstrate from it that the biblical doctrine of sin is counterintuitive to all human categories. The average person does not have a clue about what it means, even though most are sure that they get it. It is a radical concept that does not dehumanize anyone. It actually guards the idea of justice at the same time. So what is it? What, what is it? Well, this passage tells us at least three things about sin that will facilitate our understanding of the same. I have outlined them in a manner that you can pick them up and carry them home. Alright? Number one, detecting sin. Number two, defining sin. And number three, divorcing sin. Can we hold, can we hold on to that? What's number one? Detecting sin. Number two? Defining sin. And number three? Divorce and sin. Nice and easy. Okay? Now, well, I have expanded it a little bit as you can see on the screen. Number one is detecting sin, and I'm calling that global self righteousness. And I'm basing it on verses 10 and 11. Number two is defining sin, and I'm calling that rebellious role reversal. And I'm looking, still looking at verses 10 and 11. And the last one, divorcing sin, I'm calling that divine vicarious intervention. And I'm basing that on verses 12 through 14. So let's start. Number one, detecting sin. Detecting sin. Global self-righteousness. We've already read the verses. Have you noticed that we are all experts at detecting the sin of others? We don't have any trouble with that at all. However, we really have a serious problem with accepting that we are just as bad as all who we find reprehensible. Man, you. <laughs> Our default mode is to believe that we, we are better than certain people. Just reflect on how you have been outraged in the past about things that others have done. Things that you know are prominently a part of your own experience. You say with outrage, I cannot believe she did that. You know. And you're hoping the rest of us don't know about what you have done. Mm. <laughs> we have all been notorious hypocrites. I don't expect you to raise your hand into that. I said we all have been notorious hypocrites. We spend a lot of time in pretentious behavior. The self-righteousness is global. Folks, these two verses, verse 10 and 11, appear to be unnecessary repetition, but look at them. Verse 10 tells us that the Lord Jesus, the first appearance of our Lord Jesus into the world was met with indifference. Verse 10, make that clear. Verse 11 tells us that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Sounds like a repetition. However, if we look carefully at the text, there are two groups of people here. Two groups. Verse 10 is about the Gentiles. 
the world of false religion. Those who bow to idols. Mm. He was in the world. And the world was made through him. But what happened? The world did not know him. Now verse 11 is about the Jews. The world of biblical religion. Those who bow to the true and living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. <laughs> so what's the point? What's the point of bringing up the two groups of people? The apostle John was demonstrating that there was and there is a global or universal self-righteousness. It's everywhere. Jews and Gentiles. Literally everyone. Jew and Gentile alike missed the whole point of the person and message of Christ. Everybody missed it. Everybody missed it. There, there, there is actually no difference in the status of all men before God in the Bible, whether or not they were exposed to true or false religion. The self-righteousness is ubiquitous. The Apostle Paul puts the same idea very succinctly in Romans chapter 3 verses 21 to 23. Let's, let, let's read it. He wrote, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. You see that? For there is what? No difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You heard him? He said there is no difference. The apostle Paul was preaching what the apostle John had preached. There is no difference. There is no difference. In other words, the respectable people and the vagabonds are the same in God's eyes. Oh man, I know some people don't want to hear that tonight. Yeah. I'm going to have to say it anyway. There is no difference. The people who bow to idols, even those whose idolatry is atheism, because they don't really realize they have idols too, you know. <laughs> those who bow to idols, and even the people who bow to the true and living God are the same. There is no difference. All are polluted, all are contaminated, all are corrupted, and totally enveloped in sin. There is no difference. They are all at the same, the very same moral and spiritual situation. Their status morally and spiritually before God is the same. No one is better than anyone in God's eyes. Period. I think I better illustrate this. If we jump to the third chapter of the gospel according to John. The Apostle Chronicles, a very powerful illustration of the point. He introduced us to Nicodemus. One of the most admirable people in the whole Bible. The Apostle John also chronicled stories of a lot of broken people. Like the fraudulent tax collectors and the prostitutes. But this Nicodemus, is not num he was not numbered among them. He was a winner in society. He was a leader, a public intellectual. And was definitely not numbered among the poor. He was a scholar of Holy Scripture. He was very scrupulous in his morality. He wanted to grow in his knowledge of God. So he risked the rebuke of the religious establishment and tried to open up dialogue with this Jesus of Nazareth in, in, in secret by night. 
So, let's get this straight. Here is a man who is tremendously successful, able, wonderfully decent. He was widely seen as a good, moral, and open-minded person, especially in his effort to engage the Lord Jesus. He was the best of the best. Man, you don't understand Nicodemus, you know. He was the best of the best. He was widely seen as a man of God. Now hear this. The best of the best approached the Lord Jesus about salvation. And what does Jesus say to him? You see you? You must be born again. What? That's John 3, 7. Huh? John chapter 3, verse 7. You must be born again. You're not ready yet. Really? The best of the best. The rest of us, when we hear something like that, the best of the best, not ready yet. What about me? What was our Lord Jesus saying? He was telling this man who was considered to be among the best of men that there was no difference between him and the worst of men. Wow. When our Lord said, you must be born again, he was advising Nicodemus that his apparently good life was all fake. The Lord was telling him that he was a phony. Oh my. Our Lord was instructing Nicodemus that if he will see the kingdom of God, his life has to start all over. He, he had absolutely nothing to recommend himself to God. And there was nothing in his life that would mitigate his standing before a holy God. He had to start from ground zero. There was literally nothing that merits the favor of God in his life. You must be born again. That's what he told him. The best of the best. This is revolutionary stuff. <laughs> Listen. If you get this, there is hope for you. For a bad diagnosis only delays or evades the cure. The gospel of Jesus Christ, and I want you to hear me clearly. The gospel of Jesus Christ does not allow you to divide up the world into good people and bad people. Some of you need to think about that a little bit. Let me give this a moment. Okay, let me say it again. The gospel of Jesus Christ does not allow you to divide up the world into good people and bad people. You see, because there are no good people. Or oh, some of you... Some of you, know, some of you want to leave, you know, but, but just, just hold out and be with me, okay? There are no good people. It's all smoke and mirrors. Everyone has skeletons in their closet. Everyone here has secrets. Everyone has something they are ashamed of. Don't let anybody fool you. There is no difference. All are totally depraved. No difference. When the Lord Jesus calls sinners to salvation, I need you to be clear. When he tells them that they must be born again, he is not telling them to try to be good or moral. He's not telling them to clean up their lives. That's not the gospel. Neither is he telling them to become disciplined and religious. Listen, outwardly, Nicodemus was all of the above and was still found wanting in the eyes of Christ. Our Lord Jesus calls sinners to something far more revolutionary. Far more. What is it? Listen. 
before the Apostle Paul became a Christian on the road to Damascus he was a Pharisee a member of the religious elite now we know him having read the whole story uh, he was a terrorist we know he's a terrorist come on you know that right that's what he was he was a terrorist he, he's hunt, he was hunting down Christians to blow them up come on talk to me so we know the Apostle Paul was a terrorist but let me tell you something in his day he was a good man he was a part of the religious elite he was disciplined in their eyes moral and upright in his life he clearly saw himself as being a cut above most people he was proud of what he thought was a massive difference between him and the common man listen to his own description of himself before he got saved hmm? you know it Philippians 3 4 through 6 huh? listen to him if, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh I, I'm also <laughs> you, you heard him the man proud in other words come with religion I better than you verse 5 circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin a Hebrew of, he- of the Hebrews concerning the law a Pharisee don't put me in a foolish category I'm with the Pharisees hmm? verse 6 concerning zeal huh? persecuting the church in other words I do what is necessary to wipe out the unbelievers that's why they thought of him as a holy man he was going to kill Christians because the Christians in them they're not, they're not believers mm. concerning the righteousness which is of the law what do you say? <laughs> blameless <laughs> however something changed his tune when he got saved <laughs> when he got knocked off his high horse on the road to Damascus something changed his tune you want to hear how he's talking to talk now? Uh, go to verses 7 and 8 of the same chapter. He said, But what things were gained to me? What happened now? These are what? Counted lost for Christ. In, yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellency, uh, the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. I prefer King James. Dumb. Because when, when I say dumb, I don't need to exegete dumb. You understand what I'm saying? Anyway, I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Tell the truth now. You see, folks, coming to Christ caused the apostle to say what he said in Romans 3.22. There is no difference. The biblical doctrine of sin did not lead the apostle Paul to dehumanize people. To imagine that he was better than them. It led him to sympathize with people, not to look down on them. He was not above them anymore. He was a filthy sinner, just like everyone else. Christianity made him stop pretending. So if you're pretending tonight, you know you haven't found the real thing. Christianity make you stop pretending and make you look in the mirror and say, see you? You see you? Come on. (laughs) You're not ready yet. You, you are not, you're filthy. You're pretentious. 
You lie. Come on, until you can look in the mirror and do that. You knew you don't know Christianity. Christianity makes it eliminates the self-righteousness. We will never face the reality of our sin while we are totally immersed in self-righteousness. When we truly meet Christ, we will stop saying things like, I can't believe he did that. When you can't believe he did that, and you can do it. Instead, we will mourn when we see others fail. But we will say, you know what? There go I. But for the grace of God, I, I, I could be there. Oh God, show him what you show me. Show me. Help him like you help me. You know, start to stick your nose up in the air and look down. Anyway, if we have a view of sin that makes us feel that we are better than other people, we have a non-biblical view of sin. Sin will be right in front of us and we will not be able to detect it. Self-righteousness causes you not to see your sin. You can't detect it right in front of you. You can't see it. Because you've exempted yourself. You've explained things away. The self-righteousness, the self-righteous are literally found in every group. (laughs) I'm a black man. I'm happy to be a black man. But I am not enamored with being a black man. You didn't hear me? Every ethnic group can make a strong case for the wickedness and perversion that is found in another ethnic group. Come on, man. Eh? Some of you uh, associate racism with just white people. Some of the biggest racists I have found in my life are black people. Some of you don't want to hear that, man. You don't want to hear that. My whole point is that all noses are in the air For there is no difference You didn't hear me? All noses in the air For there is no difference The same can be said of every political group Come on (laughs) Where uh, one side look on the other and say Wicked set of people And the other side say Why? You better come back again Side politics, social, economic, the rich people looking on on the poor, why don't they work? And the poor look at the rich, say, You never work a day in your life. <laughs> the, the, the nose, every nose is up in the air, for there is no difference. <laughs> Academics, huh? <laughs> the intelligentsia looking at the masses, oh, a bunch of dunces and ignoramuses. <laughs> and the masses looking at those people. All them letters behind them name, and then they know nothing tall tall. <laughs> All noses are in the air. Everybody, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, it doesn't matter. Even in sports, I was about to give a West Indies cricket illustration, but I think I better see over that one. I'm not going to that. But there is no difference. There is literally equal opportunity hatred everywhere until we come into a true experience with the Lord Jesus. He alone makes a difference and enables us to see that there is no difference. 
one of the first things that the gospel of Jesus Christ does in our lives is that it causes us to see others in a different light. It causes us to love everyone. All kinds of people. Even the notorious perverts and failures. You're sorry for them and you hope you will open up their eyes. For while we may have all traveled through life in different ships, biblical Christianity makes us all see that we are really all in the same boat. For there is no difference. The biblical doctrine of sin is a radically humbling thing. But holiness will be elusive wherever there is is self-righteousness, wherever there is pride. Thanks be to God that he's not impressed with mere religion. (laughs) But only with the righteousness that he creates for there is no difference. Thanks be to God that he's not impressed with mere intellect. But only when he makes us immaculate by the blood of Christ for there is no difference. Thanks be to God that he's not impressed with status. But only with his own sanctifying work for there is no difference. Thanks be to God that he's not impressed with the mighty. But only with the meekness that he gives for there is no difference. Number two. Defining sin. Rebellious role reversal. Hmm? We're still in verse 10 and 11. Listen to me. Many believers immediately think of 1 John 3, 4 when they attempt to define sin. This is quite understandable for it clearly says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. Or if you prefer the King James, whoever commits sin, what? Transgresses the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. Now, this accurately defines sin, defines the act of sin. Will somebody say act? This accurately defines the act of sin. However, if we get a little deeper, our definition must address the essence of sin. Not just the act. The question of the essence of sin gets into what precedes the act. The condition of the heart that produces the act. Our definition of sin has to be more than about breaking rules. We just read the two verses. We've studied them. And there is nothing there in verse 10 and 11 about breaking rules. These verses clearly address sin without listing or identifying any transcendent moral absolutes that have been violated. All that we see in these verses is that Christ was rejected and not recognized. Why? Why? The truth of the matter is that we can be deep in sin, we can be corrupt to the core, even while we outwardly obey all the rules. Man, you need to think about that for a little bit. You need some time? I, I, let me run that by you again. <laughs> I said the truth of the matter is that we can be deep in sin. We can be corrupt to the core, even while we outwardly obey all the rules. Thus, our definition of sin needs to be expanded, for the essence of sin is rebellious role reversal. You see it in these verses? It is more than breaking rules. It is a switched relationship. <laughs> you know, this is not, not difficult to, to understand if we go back to when sin came upon the earth. 
our, our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, had made the case for us. Please remember that in the Garden of Eden, there was really only one rule. Why life was simple and beautiful, wasn't it? <laughs> one rule. Just getting from the hotel to here. You know how many rules we have to follow? Life today, full of rules. In that garden, they just had one. <laughs> one rule. Life was wonderfully simple. Just one. <laughs> the words of our Lord God in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 17 are what? But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, what? You shall surely die. Please notice that the Lord God did not list any of the ten principles of the Decalogue. Say, don't eat this, 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 this fruit. Don't touch this tree. Uh, that's the only rule. The issues raised in the Decalogue are what we would call transcendent moral absolutes. Most people on earth, whether they are religious or irreligious, will agree that most of those principles there should not be violated. Especially the ones that deal with our relationships with other human beings. Hmm? Everyone instinctively agrees that certain things are just wrong. I don't care where you came from. Huh? Everyone will agree certain things are just wrong. A man has a wife, leave his wife alone. Come on. Almost everywhere in the world agree with that. Huh? Don't tell lies to people. <laughs> don't kill people. <laughs> you know? Most people will agree that certain things are just wrong, like adultery and murder and stealing a line. If God had chosen one of the principles of the Decalogue as that one rule in the Garden of Eden, then it would be abundantly clear that the essence of sin would be to break a rule. For instance, if murder was the one rule, those who have not committed murder would be morally better than those who have. There would be a clear difference between people. There would be a basis for some to boast and others to mourn. However, this is, this is not what happened. <laughs> this is not what happened. Even though they were created without sin, with their mutable wills, they chose sin. Come on. I didn't say corrupt wills. Their wills were only corrupted after they sinned. But their wills were always mutable. Are you with me? So they chose sin. The Lord God simply demanded that they do not eat of a particular tree. That was the rule. And it didn't formally list the Decalogue. What was the Lord God saying? What was he saying? He wanted them to respect the ontological line in the sun. Are you all with me? I said he wanted them to respect an ontological line in the sun. He was God, and they were not. Yes. Oh, you didn't hear me? Yes. They were to honor him by not crossing the line. They were to know their place and not pass their place. Yes. Are you all still with me? Yes. <laughs> they were not to rebelliously reverse roles. <laughs> Hold your side. You're not God. I am the Lord God. Don't touch that. <laughs> when our first parents decided that they could decide. Uh, you didn't hear me. I, I didn't even need to finish that sentence. When they decided what? That they could decide. On whether the creator-creature relationship should be maintained. They committed cosmic treason. 
even before they bit into the fruit. There was cosmic treason. The act was inevitable for role reversal had already happened. Y'all, you hearing me? Huh? It was just a matter of time for them to grab the fruit and put it in their mouth. Because they decided that they're going to decide this. They passed the place. Not because they had a corrupted will, but because their mutable will was abused. They made the wrong choice. They were supposed to bask in the beauty of the one who is altogether lovely and never attempt to steal that glory. But they did the opposite. They should have said words like David said in Psalm 100 and verse 3. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Instead they did the opposite. Our first parents went the wrong way. And we have done the same in them and in person. Come on, talk to me. We did the same thing. When they made themselves judges, they pretended that there was a vacancy in the position. Man, y'all are listening to me now. They made themselves judges, but there was no vacancy. The Lord God alone is judge of all the earth. So, this is how Adam and Eve figured. God had spoken, Satan had spoken. Let's decide this. What? (laughs) Instead of straightening out the deceiver, come on, our first parents decided that they would decide on who right. (laughs) They would be the judge of the matter. They had committed cosmic treason. Even before they had behaviorally transgressed, their hearts had already left the Lord. They had taken the place of God. They had put themselves on the throne. In verse 10 of the text, look at it. We see that the world that God created would not acknowledge Him as the Creator. That's what He says here. He made the world, (laughs) and they would not acknowledge their Creator. Roll reversal. In verse 11, those who were owned by him. Come on, he came to whom? His own. Those who were owned by him did not acknowledge their owner. Roll reversal. Thus, our definition of sin must include its essence, not just the act. The essence which is to take or usurp the place of God. Please remember. That this can be done even while we are obviously obeying the rules. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. That's why there's no difference, you know. Many of the Jews were ultimately keeping all the rules. But the owner came and they said, who are you? <laughs> oh boy. There's something about being an owner, you know. Because if you come into my yard and challenge me and tell me. This is not your yard. Yeah? What do you think I'm going to do? You think, you think I'm going in for a title deed? I'm going in for something else. Oh, let me see a title. Listen, listen, listen to me. 
I'm not going to prove to anybody in my yard that it's my yard. We're not going to have an argument. Anyway, let me not say too much. You say, what kind of pastor is that? Anyway, the whole point is, an owner has to behave like an owner. Are you hearing me? Yeah? He came unto his own, and they received him not. What kind of foolish role reversal is that? You, have you been staging a coup d'etat? Are you really a traitor in plain sight? No one has all the evidence about you, but you know that your allegiance is not with the Lord. You listen to me. You're not fooling God. He's the owner. And he's going to behave like the owner. He doesn't have arguments with those whom he owns. You know, he threatens them out. <laughs> Listen to me, folks. You're still a rebel if you're giving, but doing it grudgingly. Oh, come on now. So you don't think you're rebels, you know? <laughs> you're still a rebel if you're working, but doing it lazily. You're still a rebel if you're worshiping, but doing it routinely. You're still a rebel if you're serving, but doing it resentfully. You're still a rebel if you're complying but doing it legalistically. You're still a rebel if you're polite but doing it mockingly. You're still a rebel if you're giving compliments even while you're being covetous. You're still a rebel offering apologies without a broken and a contrite heart. You're still a rebel preaching the doctrines of grace without practicing the grace of the doctrines. You're still a rebel. What were we doing? Number one was what again? Detecting sin. Global self-righteousness. Number two? Defining sin. Which is what? Rebellious role reversal. Number three, and finally. Divorcing sin. And I'm calling that divine vicarious intervention. And I'm looking at verses 12 through 14. We already read it, so I won't take the time to do so. Up to this point, we've spent all of our time on detecting sin and defining sin. The whole point of all of that was to get to this point. How can a person get out of this mess? How do we divorce sin? How do we have the victory over this menacing, formidable, and intimidating foe? The answer is that salvation is only through divine vicarious intervention. Say, boy, pastor, those are big words. Unpack that for us. Simply put, God must act on our behalf if sin is to be conquered. You can't conquer this by yourself. God must do it. It, it is only false and pretentious religion that encourages you to seek to solve this problem with rituals. Or with pilgrimages. Or with altruism. Or with philanthropy. Or whatever is considered to be good works. That's false religion. The verdict of Isaiah 64, verse 6, is thundering and it's emphatic. What? We are all like what? An unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are like what? Filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, has what? Taken us away. This matter of divorcing sin requires that we embrace at least two axioms of biblical Christianity. Alright? 
I'm going to tell you what they are. A and B. A, atonement, not achievement. Are y'all still with me? And B, adoration, not activism. Let me let me work it out for you. A, atonement, not achievement. What we are addressing here is how it is actually accomplished. <laughs> how is this divorce from sin actually accomplished? Pay attention to what is written in verse twelve. Look at verse twelve. Hmm? But as many as what received him, to them he gave the right to, to become children of God to those who believe what in his name. This is the first hurdle of divorcing sin. <laughs> what is the meaning of the phrase believe in his name? This is how we confirm that God, the Holy Spirit, has regenerated us. This is how we know we're saved. To believe in the name of a person in the ancient world is to embrace that person's person and to embrace that person's work. It is to claim and, identi and identify with everything that that person represents. You claim it and you identify with it. In this case, it is to put one's trust in whom the Lord Jesus said he was and is and to put your trust in what he has done to save you. It is to embrace Christ as God incarnate and to trust in his active and passive obedience for salvation. This means that we trust the imputed righteousness of Christ when he lived the perfect life in our place. I'm talking about the life that we should have lived and did not live. He lived that perfect life in our place. And when he died the death in our place on Calvary, that's the second part. That's his passive obedience. Where he died the death, we should have died and gone to hell for eternity. He died that death for us. He took hell for us on Calvary. <laughs> he did it all. God requires perfect righteousness. He was perfectly righteous and he's giving us the credit. God requires infinite payment for sin. He went to hell for us on Calvary. <laughs> And gives us the credit. Hallelujah. It's all been done for us. Hallelujah. So it is not achievement. It's atonement. Oh, you're not hearing me. Yeah. It's all about trusting the work of Christ alone. It's not, it's not about merely following his teachings. This country and this region is filled with people who think they're following Jesus' teachings and they will go to heaven. They're all going to hell. Yes. It's not about merely following. There are people in hell who try to follow his teachings. It is about believing in his name. Yes. The essence of such a convert's prayer is this. My Lord and my God, please accept me. Not because of what I have done. Not because of what I plan to do. Not because of what I am doing. <laughs> please accept me because of what Christ alone has done on my behalf. I embrace Christ without reservation or hesitation. His atonement is my only hope. On Christ, this solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. You know, the whole world around us. Don't mind the first part. This is the last part, brother. You heard, heard me? You say, I'm Christ, the solid rock I stand. This postmodern world say, all power to you. But then you say, all on the ground is sinking. Just get out of here. 
part of the talking about the exclusivity of Christ. If anyone is given the grace to pray such a prayer in faith, I can assure them that objectively they are given the right to become children of God. They are officially adopted. They are fully accepted. We don't preach nonsense about accepting Christ because he, he's not applying for anything. Hmm? Huh? It's about Christ accepting you. Oh, come on now. Huh? It's about Christ accepting you. You are the one who's supposed to be begging, not him. <laughs> when I was little, I used to sing a song in church. The Savior is waiting to enter your heart. Why don't you let him come in? Total nonsense. They have Jesus on his knees begging you to admit him. No, no, that's not a biblical picture. Look through your Bible and you'll see people on the roadside saying, Son of David, have mercy on me. We are the ones in need of acceptance, not him. You better humble yourself <laughs> and beg him to accept you. Huh? This means that not only are sins pardoned, a permanent relationship of love and acceptance has been established. That's objectively. But subjectively, there is an inner transformation. A love for God, the people of God, and the things of God appears and just takes over, take over your life. Yeah. <laughs> you are, some people are shocked that you're not a Christian. They look, but you look at them and say, boy, I'm more shocked than you. I know what I used to love. I know what I used to be after. No, you know that preacher used to be too long. I watched my one way when you finish the thing, and now he preached for a whole hour. And I said, Preacher, how long come you shot change me like that? Keep going, can't get enough because a change has come over you. Hallelujah! And, and there's assurance. Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Because we know what we used to love, we know that we don't love that anymore. We know we have a new love, a love for God, a love for his people, a love for the things of God. But I said that it's twofold. Hmm? A is what? Atonement, not achievement. B is Adoration, not activism. Mm. What we're addressing here is how this salvation is actually sustained. Mm. It's by atonement that it is achieved or given. But it is by adoration that it's sustained. How do we stay focused on Christ and how do we mature in this relationship? You know, many believers are troubled that there is still so much evidence of the characteristic of a pre-regenerate state in their current experience. Long after they got saved, they're still struggling with the same things. Still struggling with things like pride and fear and anger and lust. They're worried about whether this apparent transformation is sustainable. They even wonder if their profession of faith was even credible. They're concerned that their profession of faith might eventually prove to be false. This is a serious and important line of inquiry. No one should take lightly the presence of habitual and chronic moral failure in their life 
lightly. You can't take that lightly. So what is the answer? What is the answer? What is the answer? How can I know that it is well with my soul? How can I know that I'm growing in grace? How can I know that I will make it to the end? What's the answer? Look at verse 14. And the word was, the word became what? Flesh. And did what? Tabernacle among us. And we did what? We beheld his glory. The glory as of what? The only begotten of the Father. Full of what? Grace and truth. <laughs> Another helpful translation of the word beheld is gazed on. You didn't hear me. We beheld his glory. We what? Gazed on his glory. We should learn here that when the word, that's Jesus, when God incarnate tabernacled with humanity, the creator had voluntarily become vulnerable so that he could be both grace and truth. Just think about that. The creator became vulnerable. Why? So that he could be both what? Grace and truth. Let me deal with them one by one. Let's deal with truth first. How important is truth to God? How important is it to God to honor truth, even the truth of his justice? Listen, the truth of God's justice was so important to him that he could not look the other way in handling our sin. You didn't hear me? Huh? Mark you, <laughs> this word tells us that elect sinners he purposed to save even before the foundation of the world but then the same people come on this planet and they are wicked as ever he is so committed to truth couldn't look the other way <laughs> someone had to pay come on man someone had to experience hell you already said the wages of sin is death. And that's not death, just death to the grave, that's death to hell. Someone had to pay. And he's committed the truth. Someone had to experience hell. Since every sinner is completely broke, how many can acknowledge that you're broke? Come on, come on, man. Every sinner broke and destitute. Because what it takes to pay is infinite currency huh? whatever you submit is not legal tender mm? can't pay <laughs> you need an infinite currency to pay an infinite debt to an infinitely holy God so what did God do God decided to pay the debt himself <laughs> even at the cost of his only begotten son that's how important truth is to God. That was truth. But what about grace? Because he was full of what? Grace and truth. So what about grace? How important is grace to God? God's grace is so infinite, so matchless, so magnanimous, so extravagant, that he could not abandon those upon whom his heart was set even before the foundation of the world. Mm. He just could not do it. You and I would think of doing it. Hmm? This person made vows to me. They have failed me. Don't let the door hit. No, never mind. 
Most of us are not going to put up with that. But he's full of grace. He just couldn't just send us away. This is why the Apostle Paul could testify. Where was that? In Philippians 1 6, being confident of this very thing. What? That he who has begun a good work in you. By the way, that work was begun where? Before the foundation of the world. <laughs> he who has begun a work, good work with you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He just could not walk away. His gracious love will not let his people go, even if it would cost him the death of his only begotten son. Hallelujah! You know what? All of this means that apart from the cross of Calvary, we will never see the glory of God in full splendor, radiating both grace and truth. It's only the cross that you will see that. The truth of God's justice is supposed to destroy us. For we are all guilty of cosmic treason. The grace of God is supposed to elude us. For we are all unworthy of such magnanimity and extravagant mercy. But in Christ Jesus, on the cross of Calvary, our God found a way to manifest His glory in the radiant display of both grace and truth. Hallelujah. So now He is what? Both the just and the justifier of all who believe. Now he is truly the author and the finisher of our faith. Now he is truly the righteous and the recompense of the redeemed. Now he is truly the holiness and the healing of God's people. Now he is truly the strong one who has become weak on behalf of elect sinner. Hallelujah to the Lamb. No, it is only when we gaze. Will somebody say gaze? <laughs> it is only when we gaze upon the beauty of Christ's atoning work. It is only when we are totally enveloped in adoration. It is only when we are completely basking in the convergence of the grace and truth of Calvary that we will be truly changed. You gotta gaze. That is what it takes to change. That is what it takes to sanctify us. You gotta gaze. You got to adore Him. It's adoration, not activism. As a Christian, you only backslide when you stop gazing. You didn't hear me? Let's use another word to help you out. As Christians, we only backslide when we stop worshiping. We're called to pray without ceasing. We're called to live in Corandeo, in the presence of God. Hmm? You only sin when you stop worshiping. It's adoration, not activism. Yes, you will act if you continue to adore Him. Uh, when we gaze on God's truth and face the reality of His justice. It kills our pride. For we know that we deserve what we deserve. And we know that it should shut our mouth. When we gaze on God's grace and face the depths of his humiliation, it kills our fear. For we know that even after we have rejected him, he has accepted us. When we gaze upon the glory of God incarnate in his active and passive obedience. When we gaze upon his grace and truth and it grabs us. It releases a sanctifying power that edifies and transforms. To the degree that it grabs us, 
We experience an ever-increasing liberation from any yoke of bondage, any habitual sin that besets us. Let us gaze upon Him. Let us adore Him. Oh, you can join me and even join the psalmist in adoring Him. <laughs> oh, if we go down to Psalm number 27, the first five verses, it is helpful. It says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. What? Whom shall I fear? The Lord is what? The strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me, to eat of my flesh, my enemies and foes, what This is fell. Though an army may encamp against me, what happened now? My heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, what? In this what is this? What is this? What is this? What in what will I be confident? <laughs> one thing have I desired of the Lord. Say, what, what is that one thing? One thing have I desired of the Lord. That will I seek. What? 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 That I may dwell. Oh, sound like tabernacle, huh? <laughs> the word was made flesh of her. <laughs> that I may what? Dwell where? How long? To do what? Oh my goodness, to behold <laughs> To gaze Hallelujah To behold the beauty of the Lord And to do what? You see, for in the time of trouble He shall hide me in his pavilion In the secret place of his tabernacle He shall hide me He shall set me high Upon a rock Will somebody give the Lord a hand of praise right now? You're going to have to gaze you're going to have to adore him because this thing is only sustained with consistent adoration. Are y'all hearing me? <laughs> it only is accomplished through what? Atonement. Come on now. But it's only sustained with what? Adoration. Listen, I, I am closing now. I'm, but I just want to say for just a minute I'm satisfied with Jesus. Do I have a, another witness in the house? I'm satisfied with Jesus. <laughs> is Jesus enough? Yes. Is Jesus enough? Yes. I heard he is more than enough. <laughs> you see, because of him, sin shall not have dominion over me. Because of him, my sin has been cast as far as the east is from the west. Because of him, my sin has been swallowed in the depths of the sea. Because of him, my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. Because of him, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is 